you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63 as we conclude our examination, our meditation on God's Word in Psalm 63. We will again read all of the verses. This evening our focus will be on verses 5 through 11. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word, as we turn to the examination of a psalm that is dear to us, all your word is dear to us, but we reflect on the greatness of desiring you, the greatness of delighting in you, the greatness of being defended by you, and we pray that in this psalm we would be struck again by your greatness, your love, your very nature, and the great gift that we are given the standing that we have before you. May this psalm embolden us to act, embolden us to seek your face all the more, and cause you to be even dearer in our sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. For those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by him shall exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and to our lives. People of God, have you ever noticed the difference between desire and satisfaction? So this morning we discussed desiring God, that strong thirst and desire for God. But what is the difference between what you desire and between what actually satisfies you know, I'm, many of you have had this experience, I'm sure, where you spend a lot of time in, on some recipe or some meal, some, as, as guys, you know, you, you marinate something, you smoke something, you put a bunch of effort into this, and you're real excited about the finished product. And women, wives, you do this as you make your meals constantly, desiring to feed your family, desiring to give them good food. And when you pour a bunch of effort into it, you're, you're pouring a desire there. You desire to taste this. You're excited about what it will be. There's nothing quite as disappointing as putting all that effort in. And then when you taste it, it's something bland. It, it doesn't have a lot of taste. It wasn't what you were expecting. The, the desire you had was there, but the delivery wasn't. The expectation wasn't fulfilled. It's very disappointing. You can, see, you can tell I like food. It's very disappointing when you don't have that. When we desire and want to be satisfied, those, that's the marriage you want. That's the union you want. A desire that is fulfilled. That's what this psalm presents. 
This psalm presents, as we saw this morning, a strong yearning, a thirst, and a desire. And now here in the second half of the psalm, we see that God lives up to it. He satisfies. Tonight we see God answers our desire with satisfaction. We see that tonight in our two points. God, my delight, in verses 5 through 8. God, my defense, in verses 9 to 11. First, God, my delight. Though closely related in desire and satisfaction, those terms overlap and yet are distinct. The definition of desire is a strong feeling of wanting to have something or wishing for something to happen. You can see it's all forward-looking. It's, it's geared towards the future. It's, it's geared towards your feelings and desires. It's more focused on you. That what is what a desire is, that want, a feeling, wishing something to happen. The definition of satisfaction is the fulfillment of one's wishes, expectations, or needs, or the pleasure derived from it. The fulfillment of one's wishes, expectations, or needs, or the pleasure derived from it. And that's where the true glory lies, when that desire and that wish, that future focus is fulfilled. That's what we have in this psalm. Taking into account the difference between desire and delight is what is the difference between thirst and satisfaction. So this morning, as we were looking at that thirst and that desire, tonight we look at the quenching of the thirst. It's not just the craving for a glass of cool water. That would be great if that's all what this psalm presented, to crave God. And it does. But it fulfills that craving. We see that as indeed we look... At verse 5, verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When you're going through psalms and and poetry and wisdom literature, it's important to pay attention to the, the imagery. That's the whole point of this language. It provides an image. It gives us in a different way, in what could be called even the highest use of language, a picture. This morning, you saw the picture clearly in the first four verses was thirst. Very evident, that's what David is saying. Now you see a switch. He's switched from thirsting to now food, which is an appropriate switch. So follow the imagery. The reason the psalmist changes this imagery is that thirst conveys that deepest longing and need. You need water. And yet what it doesn't convey and why he switches now to food is that you cannot savor water. It doesn't satisfy in that sense. Thirst can be quenched and done away with. But food is truly something that's exalting in. It's a taste. It's a flavor. And so the psalmist switches and describes God, describes knowing him in this way as as a satisfaction in food. It's that choicest meal. It's that grand flavor that you just have it sit in your mouth and you savor it and you say that that is amazing taste. It does satisfy. So you don't savor water, but you do food. And it's not just any food. The psalm describes rich food, fat food. That's the choicest portion. That's the food that has the most flavor. That's the food that contains so much of what is needed for your body. The best portion. For some of you, for me, this is like ribs or steak. This is that portion. That's the, that's the portion you, you desire. That what satisfies. It's the richest part. These words are the same words that the psalm uses to describe this. It describes the sacrifice and the portion of the sacrifice that was withheld for God was the, is, is what these words describe. That choice 
portion. In that sacramental language, that sacrifice language, I should say, that this portion, the one that, that the priest would use for God's portion, this is what God is for us. We are, and David is feasting upon God. You see, we don't just thirst for God and are left thirsting. We thirst no more because he is enough. and We are satisfied. Is this how we think of God? Is this how you think of God? Something to be savored? And I like that word for this, savored. You know, you don't just wolf it down. Some of us do that. Some of us eat that way where we just wolf it all down, but you, you savor it. You enjoy it. And that's what God is. That's what God is meant to be savored. You let it sit there. You contemplate on it. You meditate on it. You see the full depths and complexities of who he is. You understand all that's going on, the dynamics there. You take that time. Do we do that? You see, God's not just a crutch. God's not just something there to uphold us. He's something to be enjoyed. Something to be fully explored. You can use food in this illustration as well as the psalmist is using it. In one sense, food is necessary. You can't live without food either. Just as you can't live without water, you need food. Yet food can just be a necessity. It can be something that just provides nutrition and yet isn't what the psalmist is describing. God isn't just the necessity of life, the necessary thing. He is the rich food, the portion that's choice, choicest, the most flavorful, the best. Do we think of God that way? That is who he is, fully satisfying, one to contemplate on, one to look on, to be savored. We need to be reminded of the glory of God that it's so amazing. We don't realize what we've been given in God, how blessed we are in him. Have you ever observed a married couple where one of the spouses is a a real piece of work, a real pain? Where these two spouses, one of them couldn't be more different than the other. Where the one seems to be lazy and mean and harsh and selfish, a bump on a log. But the other one is, is gracious and nice and joyful and happy and they seem so utterly opposite. And you would save of this harsh one, this mean one, the one that... They don't enjoy their spouse. They don't realize what they have. They don't realize how far off they, they, they came. You, there's a term for this. It's called outkicking your coverage. When you outkick your coverage, it means you have someone who is so out of your league in every way. That's what we have in God. And too often, we are like the spouse in this marriage, and we are and can say covenantally in our covenant relationship with God, too often we are like that spouse that doesn't realize what God is like. As this gracious, joyful, happy God who loves us and shows that love. You see, in the real world, when we, when we see that in a relationship, you, you just think how foolish that other spouse is to not know what they've been given. We don't want to be guilty of that with, with God. So we see all for who he is. We savor and delight in him. Look at verse 6. You see, God isn't just a God for us in a passing time. He's a God for us at all times. Verse 6 says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now the psalmist is in a position here that none of us like to be in. 
the doldrums of the night, waking up and not being able to sleep. This would appear to be the worst time to savor God. This would appear to be the worst time to delight in Him and to find Him to be satisfactory. And I don't mean it in the, the bad way. That's just satisfactory. I mean the full satisfaction. Seems like a bad time to do that. You would think it should be more of an idyllic time, some time when the psalmist is on a mountain and sees the grandeur of creation, and then he would say, God, you are my delight. God, you are these things. Or, Or perhaps by the sea, where he sees the beauty and power of the sea, or a garden and sees that beauty. But that's not where the psalmist is. We brushed up against this a bit this morning. The psalmist is in a a dire situation. There are those who are seeking his life. There are those who want to tear him down. And if we could perhaps read between the lines as the psalmist is describing it, he's up at night and turning and tossing. It's the 2 a.m. and he cannot sleep. That's the situation he's in. That's the time he chooses to declare how God is all you could ask for, all you could desire. He's filled with praise and deep understanding of the surpassing wealth of knowing God. Why is that? Verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. God has been his help. God is his help. He is well-practiced, it would seem, in bringing to mind all that is good about God. And there's a lesson for us there. This is the lesson of our human mind and the way we think. We will establish thought patterns in our life. Thought patterns that continue to go. And as you continue to think down a certain thought pattern, as you continue to think, you are digging a rut in the ground. And it's easier to follow that rut. And that's what we're going to do with anything Whatever you set your mind on, whatever you contemplate, your mind, your thinking, will gravitate towards that more easily. You will fall into that rut. You can think of that as like a wheel, old-time wheelbarrow that's pushed, that has the, the skinny wheel that just kind of digs into the ground. The more times that path is traveled, the deeper it digs. And that's not always a bad thing, for you can follow that track. But if that track's not going to a good place, now you're in danger. And you see, at the 2 a.m. time rolling around at night, we're probably more prone to start establishing thought patterns that aren't good. Thought patterns that veer off towards anxiety, or veer off to grumbling, or anger, or fear, or doubt, or whatever it is. And as we live that way and continue to think that way, that is what we're going to produce in us. As you set your mind on something, it's not just a meaningless thought. The more you set your mind on something, the more your brain will go there. And what we see here displayed by the psalmist and what we should be achieving or seeking to achieve is establishing one path that goes always to God. And the more easy it is for us just to go there with everything, we follow that track towards God. Sometimes this means we have to break out of those sinful patterns that we always go to, that we always think. But you see how he does it. How does he do it? Verse 7 shows you. Where does he go with his thoughts? For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So there's two aspects of that verse. For you have been my help. He sets his mind on past faithfulness of God, and that is important for us to do, to see how God has been faithful for us 
to have even in our minds a fixed pattern of going to the faithfulness of God, how he has been faithful. So that's the first thing he does. And the second thing, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So now he's thinking of not only how God has been faithful to him, now he ascribes to God more imagery. The imagery of a protective bird, of a protective bird that has its wings over him, and he will sing for joy then in it. And so he is establishing, he's being proactive, he's working here. He is working on establishing what is right thoughts, what are right praises of God, and that's exactly what we must do. Work to think right. Don't just be pulled and tossed by your thoughts. Our thoughts are, are slippery, dangerous things. They're things we always wrestle and fight. They're things that will lead us to do sin or to praise. They're things that will lead us down into depths or will lead, as the psalm says, to a contemplation of all that God provides, of all that God is. He gives the language of wings, the shadow of wings. Think of a strong bird of prey the regality and strength of like an eagle that has that long wingspan but's protective over its young, that has that piercing stare that if any were to come close, it would fix its gaze upon it. That is how the psalmist characterizes God. He sees that he is safe in the shadow of God's wings. Speak those thoughts to yourself. Understand that in Christ you are protected in those wings. Understand that in the difficulty and dark times, if even those seeking your own life, as the psalmist is facing, he trusts that God will protect, that 2 a.m. time becomes a time for, for the psalmist to praise the Lord. And then look, it just gets more deep, just gets more beautiful in verse 8. My soul clings to you, Your right hand upholds me. There are, again, two portions of this verse, two halves to it. The first, my soul clings to you. This is a description of what he himself is doing. He's clinging. That word cling is familiar to us. Other usages are Genesis 2.24, describes marital devotion. That's the word for cleaving. You leave your family, you leave your father and your mother, and you cleave to someone else. So it's a marital bond is what it describes as that strong cleaving, that taking up and holding tight. And that's what he says his soul does. There's another example of that word, which is used in Ruth 1, chapter, when Ruth chapter 1, verse 14, where Ruth clings to Naomi and will not depart from her. She seizes her. She will not be left behind. And this is what the psalmist does. He clings to God. My soul, his very life, His being clings to the Lord. He will do it. He is seeking it. But that's not the most beautiful part of this verse. Nor is it the most impressive. It's the second half of that verse. Your right hand upholds me. This psalm is full of imagery. That's why these messages need to be full of imagery. What's the imagery there? It's that though he may be trying to cleave and cling to God in this way... That would prove to be useless if God wasn't the one who upheld him. And so the imagery we could think of here is like a young child. A young child trying to hang on to something. And they're trying to hang on with all their might. And the father who comes and places his hand over their small young hands and hangs on for them. You see, the strength is not in that child. The child cannot cling. The child cannot cleave with that strength. But the power of God, the power of the Heavenly Father, he can. 
And so he hangs on to him. He upholds him. And he uses the word, the right hand. The strong hand. The hand that represents power and authority and might. That is how God clings to his people. And we know enough to realize that that strong hand, that right hand of power, that right hand of deliverance, very familiar with that language from Exodus. We came across that all the time, that mighty outstretched hand of power. What is that hand? Well, it's Christ. Our deliverance is in Christ. We, in union with Christ, are in union with God. He holds to us, and he has ordained to hold on to us through his Son. That is why Christ has come. The power of God, that bond that can never be broken, is the bond that we have through Christ. He is those hands that hold and protect. And it's not divorced from the other members of the Trinity. This is the Father's will to send the Son to achieve and the Holy Spirit that applies. So you are held firm, even as you seek to cling and cleave to God with all of your strength. This causes the psalmist as well, as he says, I will sing for joy. He will sing for joy for knowing this. And again, perhaps while he's turning and tossing at night. You get that? It's a hard time. We need that. We need to know that this can be our response in difficulty and pain. God shadows and protects and upholds. Holding our little weak hands, our little baby hands that can't grip, no matter how hard we try to hang on, but his hand can. Hand of power and strength. And the next verses show what those hands can do. We see that in verses 9 through 11 in our next point. God, my defense. God, my defense. Notice it isn't until verse 9 that the psalmist references the problem. And I think that's important. For eight verses, what has he done? He has thought very well. He has yearned for God. He has thirsted. He has desired God. He has placed his mind on the correct thought pattern and thought life to go of God as his sovereign protector, faithful God, the one who shelters him in the power of his own arms and his wings that are protecting him. This is how he presents it. This is what he says first. And now he comes to the problem. And it's not to state it. It's not even to ask, Lord, deliver me here, as much as to praise the fact that this is what God will do. What faith? That takes strong faith. It's one thing to petition, Lord, deliver me. And that's a fine petition, which we give all the time. It's another thing to have so much trust in the strength of God and in Him as His defense to know this is what God is going to do. Now, we can't say that about every little thing in life to the point where we know how it's going to work out. We can say that about every little thing in life to know God is in control of it all. To know where God will ultimately do what he will do is for our good, for his glory. That's what we can know. That's where we can place our faith. And so the psalmist declares that. He says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. He is confident in the Lord, in the Lord that has, that has told him that he will reign, that he will be king. He is confident in the promises of the Lord. 
He knows that he is taken care of and that God will take care of his enemies. Establish this as a thought pattern in your life. God takes care of enemies. God takes care of trial. God takes care of those seeking destruction. God takes care of the devil. God takes care of his minions. God takes care of what assails us. Verse 10, his enemies will be given over to the power of the sword. This could be translated more in a more wooden way, a little more literal. They shall be caused to pour over the hands of the sword. Pretty graphic. What it's saying is, in other words, the sword will strike them all the way to the hilt. Now that's a depiction of God, our defender taking that sword and skillfully delivering it all the way in defense of his people, in defense of his chosen, his chosen king. And the next line, they shall be a portion for jackals. Jackals are those animals that are the final scavengers. They're the ones that come to take the remains that everyone else has left behind. The bigger animals that have eaten their fill, have turned away, have even sniffed away at this and left. The jackals come in and devour the portion. So what is this psalmist saying? He is saying that these enemies, these wicked enemies who seek the destruction of the Lord's appointed king, is in other words the very leavings of mankind. The roadkill that no other animal would touch is, is what the psalmist says. This is to elicit in God's people that response of God our defender. Again, this is the way you think. These are the thought patterns you establish God protects. This is what we need to set our minds on in our difficulty. And what we go through in, in verse 11... The psalmist, again, likely David, refers to himself in the third person. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. He specifically hones in on lying and deception, likely because those who were seeking his life were those of some power and those who were two-faced, telling him one thing to his face or speaking about him in one way and then denying it and lying in another and seeking and scheming to put him to death, to tear him down, whatever fail and fall they wanted to bring about. And so he hones in on the fact that God is his defense in such a way that all lying will be stopped. The truth will be put to right. And that in and of itself is an amazing blessing to us, that truth will reign. For this world, we see deception, we see lies, it's all around us, we don't know what is true. People can characterize us in, in, in incorrect ways. Even the church and Christians themselves are often characterized by lies and what is not true. Well, God puts that to right. Mouths of liars will be stopped, stopped in such a way that a sword plunged up to the hilt stops lies. That's what the power of these words. God the defender. He is our defense, and we rejoice in God because he has it under control. Don't seek to control it. Your praise will be somewhat lacking, somewhat anorexic, unless you realize that it is God who is in control. It is God who defends and not you, and that your future is not your own, that God has established it. He defends just notice the flow of the psalm. We've thirsted for God with the psalmist. 
We've sought quenching, and then we see it satisfied in this rich food. And then we see ourselves in the middle of the night, and what do we do? We contemplate on his faithfulness, and we see that that faithfulness actually defends his people. And then the king will rejoice in God. God is our only satisfaction even when we face attacks. That's the point. God is our only satisfaction even when we face attacks. Brothers and sisters, Psalms present a lot of poetic language to describe these truths, and they do it well. But let's not the illusions, the phrases, the parallels, the poetry cloud the very truth that the psalm is trying to convey. It's not talking about water. And it ain't talking about food. It's not talking about birds and wings. It's not talking about swords. It's talking about God. It's talking about Him, our desire, our delight, our defense. Let us turn to this psalm. Let us turn to this psalm when we need help. We need to see that what we desire is God, that we delight in Him, that we are defended in Him. This all makes sense that we would desire God. Why wouldn't we do anything else? He is pure goodness. He is a defender. It's not a mystery that this is David's response. It's not a mystery that this is our response, but there is one lingering mystery. Why does God respond? Why does God love us? Why will he do this for us? Yet we'd be foolish not to desire him. But in one sense, it's almost like, is God foolish to desire us? I say it that way not to be sacrilegious. I say it that way for us to contemplate that depth. God's love is so beyond what we understand. So beyond what we know. But he does love us. He loves us in such a way that this psalm can't convey. This morning I said that perhaps the psalm is unparalleled in its portrayal of the devotion to God, and and for its place that makes sense, but I would like to modify that. The only and true event that shows the devotion of God to us is his Son. This psalm may well express our desire for him But I believe we should see God's response, not only what he says here, but what he says in the rest of his word. When Christ is the one who comes to show us to what lengths he will go to defend his people. What lengths he will go to be our very feast. What lengths he will go to satisfy us. So we will do as the psalm says. We will praise him because he is the best and we know it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are stirred in our hearts through your word. We are stirred in the understanding of what you are to us lowly creatures, and though we do not deserve any of it, 
May we not walk away unchanged and untouched by what Psalm 63 has to say and the greater and, and, and full truth and expression of what Psalm 63 is in your love through to us through your Son. May this create in us again that response to desire you, to search you, to draw near to you, but may it also create in our hearts just the simple response of praise for the amazing nature that we see, your amazing nature we see on display, even in this psalm. We ask this in Christ's dear name.